Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. It's episode two, we're talking cocktails. Americans have always been fond of alcohol. Beer was a prevalent drink and an alternative to water that often carried disease. Beer, even a weak brew, effectively killed any infectious diseases in the water through fermentation. So in many ways, alcohol became a necessity for Americans. Now don't get me wrong, These drinks could still pack a punch, and many drinks in the early Republic did. One of my favorite Revolutionary-era stories is about Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, who went tavern hopping through Vermont on their way to storm Fort Ticonderoga. They drink a mix known as a stone fence, made from rum and hard New England cider. When they took the fort, they were rewarded with more rum found in the British stores. Imagine what a party that was. Now, something changed in the Gilded Age, though a new libation became popular, the cocktail. In fact, cocktails had been around since the early 19th century. In a New York newspaper, an editor responded to a reader saying, cocktail is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. It renders the heart stout and bold at the same time that it fuddles the head. I think that description holds true today. And to help us understand the history of cocktails in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, I am joined by Cecilia Tishy. Cecilia Tishy is the Gertrude Conway Vanderbilt Professor of English and American Studies at Vanderbilt University. She is a former president of the American Studies Association and one of the most prolific authors on Gilded Age and Progressive Era social history. Her books on technology, environmental reform, and media, published in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, are light years ahead at that time and and still at the vanguard of emerging scholarly turns in American studies. In 2001, she published Embodiment of a Nation, Human Form in American Places, which is one of the most intellectually stimulating books I've ever read. Through the natural forms found across the American landscape, she tells the story of a hazardous nationalism, the gendering of society, and the centrality of the frontier to the American psyche. She's also written about reformers that shaped the progressive era. She's written about Jack London, and she's written a wonderful book that tells about Gilded Age socializing derived from etiquette manuals and the papers of socialites that made it to the biggest parties and galas of the day. Tishy is also one of those rare academics that writes fiction, 
and an even rarer crossover writer that is successful in both genres. She's written five mystery novels informed by her deep understanding of American culture. When I saw that she wrote a new book about cocktails, I knew I needed to speak with her. Other than history, nothing excites me more than a strong drink. And so I'm delighted to introduce Cecilia Tishy. Welcome to the show, Professor Tishy. Thank you, Professor Cullinan. Well, I just wanted to start off by saying that it seems to me that Americans have always been fond of alcohol and cocktails. Um, and you've written so beautifully about the American experience from so many different angles in your previous writing. I just want to know what brought you to cocktails. Well, I had I had uh, done a book uh, called What Would Mrs. Astor Do? A book on the manners and mores of the Gilded Age. And there was a section, of course, on Ward McAllister, Mrs. Astor's uh, sort of... Um, you know, you know, manager, shall we say, a kind of a chess piece in her life. And Ward McAllister, a Savannah-born uh, connoisseur of fine dining and of of beverages, um, introduced to Mrs. Astor the champagne cocktail. He was one of the first to understand that ice is not a dilutant but a an enhancement. And so in that book, I had written, you know, a little patch uh, about beverages and acknowledged that cocktails were for the gentlemen, such as juleps, uh, but that the ladies, uh, though they could imbibe all sorts of wines, liqueurs, champagne, which I had called the tap water of the elite, um, they were prohibited from drinking cocktails. Now, let's acknowledge that a teacup need not necessarily contain tea. Uh, and there were in New York certain tea rooms uh, which had backdoor entrances to hotel bars and could serve tea to the ladies uh, and no one the wiser. But in that book, I said very little uh, about the, the, the whole topic of cocktails. Uh, and and had to look into this golden age of cocktails, and here was an opportunity uh, for a for a book, not a long book, but one I I um, uh, got very deeply into very fast, uh, and I would say, I might add that um, I was raised um, uh, two generations up by parents and grandparents who did enjoy their cocktails. And so it was, uh, uh, fortunately, I was spared uh, the domestic scene of alcoholism that is so damaging to so many families, but was able to appreciate uh, the sense and sometimes to be offered a sip uh, of a Manhattan or an old fashioned, uh, and, uh, and that was enough. <laughs> Until I, uh, in late teens, uh, when when the drinking age in New York State was age eighteen, one could order just anything. But I'm I would like to know how many young women of my age started out with um, the Brandy Alexander, <laughs> and so that was the way in, heavy on the uh, on the cream. Uh, and, um, and just to say, that's, you know, I'm sort of going on and on. But, but the point is, um, 
I was raised with some sense of the cocktail world. And once I was pretty much entrenched in the Gilded Age for my research, and that's really for the last probably quarter century, turning to cocktails was unnatural. That's fascinating on so many levels. And there's so much I'd like to unpick about the golden age in particular. But I want to pause for a second because I mentioned that I was a bartender once upon a time. And the Brandy Alexander is a great cocktail. It was one of the first ones I learned how to make. So it's it's brandy, uh, creme de cacao, right? And, yes, and, yes. And, and cream or milk. That's quite a heavy cocktail to, to have as an 18-year-old, though. It's it is it is and uh, and I my father would say two's the limit <laughs> and uh, and I wasn't driving so uh, but I want would like to ask I would think it a nuisance for a bartender from the other side of the bar what did you think when you had calls for those. Well, they didn't come very often. They were usually in the winter because no one would drink such a thing in the summer. Uh, but they were great fun to make because you could you could put the drink into your, your shaker and froth it up. And it was a bit of a, a show piece for the rest of the bar. Whereas some of the simpler drinks sometimes weren't as much fun. And I think one of the things that you and I have to speak about is the bartenders uh, that were around in the Gilded Age because- Oh, oh yes. They were showmen. remarkable. They were showmen. And I think to this day, um, uh, there's uh, insufficient appreciation for what the bartender performs when he's doing it right. We talked about Jerry Thomas bit, the, the um, founding father of American cocktails. Born in Connecticut, 1820, his parents hoped that he would enter the ministry but his pulpit was the mahogany bar. And, and his inventiveness really set the stage for so many bartenders, but in appearance in New York, and he, he tended bar just down from the, the uh, P.T. Barnum American Museum. And in that bar, he would wear diamonds. It was the, the era of diamond Jim Brady, uh, often on the scene with Lillian Russell, the famous uh, songstress and actress. And so they themselves were celebrities in New York, but the celebrity bartender, diamonds uh, along the, the studs of his shirts, diamonds in his, in his French cuffs, although cu uh, the cuffs sort of pushed up as he tended bar, and diamonds glittering on as many fingers as he could mount those diamond rings and still reach the cocktail shaker. So he glittered as he worked, literally was shining. Uh, and with the, with the plant ice that came in from the 1870s, those hard, clear blocks, crystals, chips um, that, that had none of the cloudiness of the ice that had been harvested off rivers and ponds. It was a whole new world. The, the, the glassware and the clear ice uh, shining like diamonds themselves and the bartenders, what a show. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, did, I, you, I, did you wear, did you, um, you know, fancy yourself up uh, attending bar? 
I, I don't think bartenders in the 1990s fancied themselves up the way that bartenders of the Gilded <laughs> Age not did. Way, not that way. I, I can't quite understand, I guess, as a former bartender, why they would. I mean, was it just for the show? David Wondrich calls the period the Baroque era of cocktails. And I think there's some truth in that. But why are they getting so dressed up? Well, I think entertainment out, um, outside the home, uh, was a thing. So there were there were Broadway shows. There were two dozen theaters along Broadway. Uh, many changing shows uh, every two weeks, and so after a show, nightlife, and so after Broadway's shows, let's say from eight to 10 o'clock, then into a carriage. Perhaps if a stage door Johnny had waited at the stage door for, for a chorus girl, he might take her for a spin in Central Park in a handsome cab, then to one of the lobster palaces or, or any number of the restaurants open until very, very, until the wee hours. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was time for another show by the bartender uh, and uh, the stage door Johnny or the host would want to entertain as well as Broadway had entertained. And that entertainment was behind the bar. Also with waiters who were so deft and professional. Um, I have recently learned that at the Waldorf Astoria, Oscar of the Waldorf required every waiter to speak three languages. English, French, and German, so that any, any guest of the hotel just off the boat would have no uh, discordant experience uh, from landing in New York to entering the hotel and the waiters. And that, of course, the waiters had to know themselves all about the cocktails, the wines, and the, and the brewery products as well. So it was, it was a night-long show. Uh, but the but the the bartender was a showman. I mean, it seems safe to say that the excess in cocktail making matches the excess of everything else in this age. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And we could, if we wished, um, uh, continue to into the excess of the of the jazz age twenties too. But here we are, the in the gilded age today. Yes. I mean, celebrity bartenders still exist today. I mean, there's obviously flair that goes on today and there's competitions for all that. I, I, I kind of have an idea of what inspires bartenders today, but what do you think inspired bartenders back then to take up mixology and share, share their recipes with people? I think there was a certain, there was a certain rivalry um, of uh, bartenders, kind of a not exactly a fellowship or a fraternity, but uh, but some savvy about who was where and what was he mixing. Um, there was Johnny Solon at the Waldorf who could could um, mix a new drink uh, on the instant, uh, and and uh, came that moment when when a waiter approached him and said. Um, I have a patron who is wagering that you can't mix up a drink right now. And Solon essentially said, try me. Uh, and he, he reached for orange juice and vermouth and, uh, and uh, liquor and he plied the cocktail shaker. And what would we call this? Solon had been uh, at the uh, Bronx uh, Zoo just 
I think that afternoon, and he called it the Bronx. Lots of oranges, fresh orange juice. Little did he know that the Bronx would catch on and, and be a, a hit in bars all over, all over the country. So where did it come from? Oh, that guy, Johnny Solon, um, he made that, really? Well, maybe I could do better than that. Uh, maybe, maybe a Pisco Sour out here in, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, maybe the Ramus Gin Fizz down here in New Orleans. And Henry Ramus had the, had the wit uh, to have that, that wonderful Gin Fizz drink. Um, I wish we had some right now. Um, named for him. And I would bet that Solon long regretted that he called it the Bronx, um, but it trailed uh, long into, into the 20th century. So into your question, um, who were the, the celebrity bartenders and, uh, and didn't they know one another? There was Schmidt um, who uh, boasted that his cocktails were very expensive and he wrote a compendium of his own, The Flowing Bowl, uh, and uh, that book in reprint is, is available and so interesting. Uh, he himself offering his recipes. What we do need to remember, uh, and I, I call attention to this when, when somebody says, oh, I really like your Gilded Age cocktail book. I'm so eager to mix some of these cocktails. I say, look carefully at the recipe. Tastes have changed. You'll see in many of them a level of sweetness that is not to our taste today. All those sweet vermouths, all those sugar cubes and syrups, uh, we have backed off from those, but they were very popular in the day. Absolutely. I think that's um, so true about our changing tastes. And so much of your book actually is, although there's bartenders in it and there's certainly a lot of people, place features very heavily. I mean, New York to me seems to be the capital of the cocktail scene during the Gilded Age, but you mentioned plenty of other places across the country that give rise to really innovative libations. Is there any pattern that might explain why popular bars or iconic drinks crop up in certain places? Like, does it follow an economic boom or the migration of people, for example? Well, I think in answer to that question, the migration certainly uh, for the Pisco Sour in San Francisco uh, from the gold rush in 1849 uh, and up, uh, there was a migration from Latin America uh, and a Peruvian grape uh, was, was favored for a certain brandy. Uh, and, it, and it arrived in, in straight conical shaped, sort of clay ceramic uh, containers brought up by, by Peruvians, by, by uh, Latin Americans who really liked that taste. Uh, I'd like to say I can discern it uh, among other brandies. I can't make that claim. I've had many Pisco sours, enjoyed them, uh, but how different from other whiskey sours don't call on me for that, for that answer. Uh, in regard to immigration, I would even suggest that Chicago 
was hampered in its cocktail um, inventiveness by the hard drinking immigrant culture in the packing houses. Uh, that that kind of made its way, that sort of high, hard drinking idea uh, to Prairie Avenue, to the Gold Coast um, uh, porkopolis uh, in Chicago, the elite, the armors, uh, the swifts, the, the, the moguls in, in Chicago. The idea was that cocktails were too feminine men should have a shot of good old whiskey. And that whole idea um, comes forward, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm leaping for just a moment, to the late 1940s, to the, to the American writer Bernard DeVoto, who wrote, wrote, had his column in Harper's Magazine, wrote about the West. He wrote this, this querulous little book uh, um, praising pure whiskey and the martini and denouncing every other drink, including, um, including any, anything with very much vermouth, any bitters, forget bitters. He was really churlish. Uh, it sounds right out of Chicago. I have to look at his background. Uh, but, but I would say that, that San Francisco was a beneficiary of, of um, immigration. And perhaps in New Orleans, the Sazerac that had made its, its mark with that rye whiskey uh, as well, and on to the, the Ramus Gin Fizz. As, and, but Chicago, I think, was stunted in its development of the cocktail by its match, macho preference for, for straight whiskey uh, and uh, maybe that shot in a beer that the uh, that the packing house workers favored on Whiskey Row. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, and in terms of New York, I mean, New York is just the epicenter of this story in many ways. The regional drinks are one thing, but is New York the epicenter because of the Atlantic crossing, because the excess of the Belle Epoque or of, you know, uh, or of London at this time is so similar to that of the, the Big Apple? Mike, I think you're absolutely right. Um, if we, if we, if we see the poll, the two polls, Wall Street uh, and, and, and up into Fifth Avenue. Now, Fifth Avenue came somewhat late. Mrs. Astor was, was a kind of trailblazer, putting her last great mansion at 640 Fifth Avenue. But those two, money and power uh, and what to do with all that money. And so once, once those mansions were, were built and the cottages in Newport uh, and all of the of the shipping that came in, the 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 whiskies um, from from Ireland, from Scotland, um, all and Jerry Thomas swirling around and Schmidt and the other bartenders, including those uh, up at Saratoga, which is kind of a of a of a branch. Uh, the, the branch bars of, uh, of the city uh, where people would sometimes go uh, to refresh themselves and, and health, health uh, claiming uh, between summer in Newport and the winter in New York and a few weeks in Newport, in, uh, sorry, in Saratoga. Uh, but that bartender uh, entertained as he mixed drinks by doing clog dancing. So he was a kind of terpsichord, but all that power swirling in New York, the money, the and when George Bolt brilliantly set up the Waldorf Astoria bar, um, he had tried cocktail tables initially uh, in the Waldorf hotel, little tables. Nobody wanted to sit down. They wanted to stand at the bar and watch their drinks being being mixed and, and hear that maraca of the cocktail shaker. Uh, and so when the Waldorf Astoria clapped together, those two um, Astor cousins who loathed each other um, uh, agreed that profit uh, took precedence over all. George Bolt devised a bar in the Waldorf Astoria that had a ticker tape that would produce the stock quotations after Wall Street closed. The Wall Street men surged into that bar after hours and it became known nationwide as the epicenter, as you call it. So Buffalo Bill Cody, if he was in town, there he would be in his hat, a celebrity, all those kings of copper uh, and other minerals from the West. Now we need, <laughs> we need to bear in mind that these Western kings um, of, of wheat and of copper and so on, they didn't understand that liqueurs needed to be sipped and served in tiny glassware. 
So after some cocktails, they would ask for liqueurs. And when Benedictine or, or uh, Grand Marnier would be served in these tiny little glasses, they would insist on a man-sized glass and, and, uh, and a man-sized bottle, and they got it, much to Bolt's dismay as, as they plunked ice into a tumbler, filled it up uh, from the liqueur bottle, and chug-a-lugged it. Uh, but the exchequer, when he saw the profits, was delighted. So, so they had to be taught what to drink and how to drink. But those Gilded Age moguls uh, from the Wild West were, uh, uh, were not to be schooled, not during their visits. So, I mean, there's a great gender dynamic in all of that. And you've already touched on that a little bit. I mean, these are these are men that see drinking as a manly pursuit. And, uh, you know, women in the bar, you, you talk about a little bit, but um, drinking and serving liquor, you know, men were the primary drinkers, it seemed at the time. And women, you talk about women serving liquor to some extent, too. But that changes, too, doesn't it? I mean, how does it change over the course of the Gilded Age? Well, it, I think it, it really, it was like a dam backed up with pressure on it. Um, Colonel E. Period D. Period Man, two ends. Uh, publisher who published a what we would call a, a kind of trash uh, Fleet Street Daily uh, uh, called Town Talk. Man was known to host every every weekend for a long weekend on a private uh, chartered Pullman car up to his country house in the New York Lake District. And the car as it left Grand Central um, was, was a, a rolling saloon, so to speak. And the girlfriends, uh, uh, he didn't publish anything about it, but the girlfriends and the wives uh, enjoyed themselves and once they reached his country place for the long weekend, he had an estate, he had lawn games, uh, I think he had horses, the bartender was his daughter. Uh, and she was a full service bartender. And man would go about from nine in the morning calling out, say ducks, ain't you thirsty? And he would encourage one and all to come to his daughter's bar, especially for scotch and sodas. And she, she plied the seltzer bottle and there was plenty cases and cases of whatever whiskey and uh, scotch was, was recommended, but people could have what they wanted. She had her, her bitters, she had her maraschino cherries, her fresh fruit. Uh, and it was known that she tended bar. You're asking about the women tending bar and we need to know more uh, because came prohibition. And in those speakeasies, the flappers stepped up to the bar, put their little calfskin boots on the rail and ordered their own drinks. Where did they learn to do it is the question. I think that's a great question. And I think in terms of the sexual revolution that we see in the 20s, 
it does have its roots uh, in, in, in the Gilded Age of Progressive Era. So it, it would be great to find those resources. And for all those intrepid researchers out there thinking about what a great project would be, well, that certainly is one of them. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. get thee to the archives. <laughs> absolutely. You talk a lot about the individuals that we know from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and you've got an entire chapter in the book on, I think it's called In Honor Of, which are recipes that relate to individuals. And I wanted to share a little story with you about one that you mightn't have found that I found somewhere called the George Dewey cocktail. And I don't know if you've heard of that or not. I yield to you the Dewey cocktail. Well, I, I think it's one of those cocktails. That's, it's got a great story about it. Dewey comes home from Manila after winning that famous battle, and uh, they create a cocktail in his name, the city of New York, effectively made with bitters, orange bitters, and gin. It's supposed to symbolize um, the Far East, the flavors of the Far East. So cardamom in the bitters and our Seville oranges to symbolize the Spanish and the Spanish-American War. Um, but it seemed to me that you had to do something pretty significant to get a cocktail named after you. So what does it take for some of these characters to, to get a cocktail named after them? Well, there's fame and there's infamy <laughs> and either one will work. Um, the, um, the Bradley Martins and, and you know, and any, any student of the Gilded Age <laughs> encounters the Bradley Martin ball in 1897, um, Mrs. Bradley Martin uh, had an uncle who, unknown to her, had amassed a great fortune, uh, which she inherited. And suddenly they were the Bradley Martins, um, not, a, not a minor, um, you know, pair uh, on a guest list, but rather a couple who might marry off uh, their daughter to, uh, to a noble house of, uh, of impecunious aristocrats uh, in the United Kingdom. And so it was to come to pass that their daughter would become a countess uh, and the Bradley Martins, the parents of, uh, of royalty. And they began to see themselves as American royalty. And they, they hosted a ball in the depths of a great uh, years-long depression in the United States. You know this, 1893 and years and years uh, and, and people uh, really scratching a living, poverty, uh, joblessness, uh, a time of, of, a, of one of those, those marches of the jobless people begging for some help from Congress, uh, some employers, would they please find a way? Well, the Bradley Martins decided on the most elegant costume ball uh, ever hosted in the city of New York. And so uh, the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom was to be their scene, their stage, and everyone was to dress all the guests in the costume of a historical figure. So there would be queens and kings, there would be dukes. Uh, there was a Louis XIV, Queen Elizabeth, Queen, um, I think Victoria was spared, <laughs> spared, especially since after Albert's death, she dressed um, so, so um, relentlessly in black. Uh, but they all, costumes were prepared, wigs, uh, uh, paste buckled shoes, 
the ball started um, just about in the in the wee hours. Uh, the meal served as as a ball uh, meal was served. Mrs. Astor served hers uh, from one a.m. to two or three, and so it was. But in the depths of this depression, the the Bradley Martins were held up nationally as figures so profligate, so careless. Uh, of their country's deprivation, widespread hunger and poverty. And they were shamed. Um, and in their shame and to their defense, they were arguing, we provided jobs for costumers, for florists, um, for, for uh, livery stables, grooms, uh, who would never otherwise have had employment. It did not go down well. And they took themselves off to Europe permanently um, shortly after the ball. So they, <laughs> they were honored in dishonor with a cocktail. They were. Um, but others, of course, and you, and you rightly bring up uh, Admiral Dewey, who was accorded a diamond-encrusted ceremonial sword and named Admiral of the United States uh, uh, Navy uh, in gratitude. The great age of American empire had, uh, in a sense, officially launched uh, with the victory in the Spanish-American War. No more was the, Sp was the Spanish empire to count America on the rise. Uh, and so others um, also uh, commanded along the way. Uh, I'll tell you that I had some trouble finding enough women to be honored with cocktails. So, so you know, the, um, the uh, Gilded Age reformers uh, did not have cock. There was no Jane Addams cocktail. Um, so I resorted to, uh, to stage and screen, and here was the Mamie Gilroy, <laughs> who had been a fairly minor actress, but caught the fancy of a bartender when the traveling show came through Chicago. And I found the Mamie Gilroy, and here it is in the book. Uh, but, but one looks a, a bit... Um, a bit too deep for the women honored by uh, Gilded Age cocktails. But a group of women weren't uh, very open to uh, drinking alcohol, and that's the Women's Christian Temperance Movement. And, and that's kind of the elephant in the room that we have to talk about. How did the temperance movement affect alcohol consumption and especially cocktail making in the Gilded Age? That is a crucial question, isn't it? Um, uh, temperance was on the, you know this, American agenda, even from the colonial days. Uh, Increase Mather wrote, a, wrote a, a leaflet, woe to drunkards. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne in uh, the House of the Seven Gables took the opportunity to, um, to wish a curse uh, on vintners and distillers of liquor. So there was a strain of, uh, of, of anti-alcohol pro-temperance running all through uh, US. You know this, um, this 
uh, Daniel Okren's last call, um, a, a book about the foundation of temperance and found that, and I think this is, this is a very important point, that temperance was a Protestant white American movement over and against the, the immigrant hordes of Roman Catholics who, who imbibed, who made wines, who drank wines, who drank beer, um, who quaffed and indulged, and that really uh, the temperance movement in its deepest vein was a hostility on the part of Protestant white America uh, against the, the, the immigrant uh, waves pouring into this country, and the verbs are always of flooding, um, uh, needed all these immigrant hard workers for the mills and the mines um, uh, of, of Pittsburgh and Cleveland and, uh, and Gary, Indiana, and, uh, and up into Chicago. So temperance, it, it came and went in, in waves, yeah, of course. I mean, we could talk more about the temperance movement and how important it is. And, uh, you know, maybe there should have been a, a few cocktails in honor of members of the Anti-Saloon League. <laughs> um, I think some of the funny things that I think of, though, with the temperance movement is some of these cocktails, and you've alluded to this, they sound terrible. They don't sound like it. Right. I mean, there's too much sugar in them. You mentioned the Shandy Gaff, which was ale and ginger beer. Yuck. You mentioned the Bradley Martin, which is creme de menthe and raspberry syrup. Um, I mean, they sound terrible. But on the other I, hand, some of them sound pretty good. Like Somebody liked them back in the day. That's all we can say. But I perfectly agree with you. And when we get to, and I know this is off, off our, you know, our border, but, but the, the drinks during prohibition um, and setting aside the, the diluted and the, the contaminated you know, faux liquors, uh, some of those drinks are equally um, uh, loathsome. I mean, I think they'd put you to bed for a week. <laughs> Okay, well, if I had to put you on the spot and ask you what would be your favorite drink, though, which one appeals most to you out of the book, which one would it be? It's an old-fashioned, made the right way. And I know when it's served to me, whether, whether the bartender, for all, he, maybe he was so busy, or she was, and, and uh, did not macerate the, the uh, orange, and so just relied on the syrup and I'll enjoy the drink nonetheless. And it should not be made with the best bourbons. Uh, no Pappy Van Winkle, don't do it. But a good bourbon, uh, Woodford, uh, I like, uh, and, and made with care. And here's something that I have also um, uh, thought recently. I think people, when they're served their drink, need to pay more attention to the look of it. It's in, it's in, it should be in very good looking glassware. The ice has, a, has an aesthetic, the coloration. Uh, if it's served with, with both uh, an orange and a, and a wedge, as well as a peel, look at it, enjoy that look. 
um, appreciate the the spear through that through that dark cherry before you sip it. Don't look up at some sports event on the screen above the bar. Don't just start gulping and chatting away. Give yourself a moment to appreciate what someone has made for you uh, and and put before you. It looks good. Appreciate it and then enjoy it. What a great way to wrap up. Although there is still so much to say. And if you want to hear more, there's bonus content available. Professor Tishy will talk about drinking etiquette, the drinking culture on college campuses, and she even gives us a reading list for all things Gilded Age. I even asked her what object she thought symbolized the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, something that I'm asking all guests now, and you won't want to miss her answer. I'll put that and all of the readings in the show notes on the website. Finally, I feel obliged to tell everyone about Cecilia's new venture because it is a most exciting one. If you recall, I mentioned her side hustle as a novelist. Well, big news on that front. From this fall, you can get your hands on her latest fiction, a trilogy, in fact, and I've taken to calling it the Gilded Trilogy. These three books tell of two loved-up detectives fighting crime and temperance in Gilded Age New York, and they are Roderick and Valentine. The first book is called A Gilded Death, and it features cocktail recipes in the novel. The second book is called Murder, Murder, Murder in Gilded Central Park, and the final novel is A Fatal Gilded High Note. I'll put links to those books in the show notes as well. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow The Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.